Good morning. So Pentecost is this wonderful day in the church calendar where we are invited to think about the person and work of the third person of the Holy Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit. And my long time of being in the church, and frankly, mostly charismatic and Pentecostal churches, um, and then, you know, around in other spaces as well, it seems to me that the Holy Spirit may be the most misunderstood person. It's like if you think of God, if you think of God as person, that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, may be the most misunderstood uh, person in the history of humanity and maybe have the most sort of prejudices attached to him. Now, I know how this works. For some people, the third person of the Trinity is consigned to history. And, you know, there's this notion that when the apostles died out, then basically uh, large aspects of the Holy Spirit went away as well. There are other people in other parts of the church, and some of you may have come from this part of the church, where the Holy Spirit is the source of weirdness that some people think they see amongst charismatics and Pentecostals. Well, in my experience, that's where most people are that most people, when they think about having a robust, ongoing, conversational relationship with the Holy Spirit, did you catch that? A robust, ongoing, conversational relationship with the Holy Spirit, that is not intuitive to most people because most of us are reacting to excesses. And I get it. I get how people can read Acts 2 in our modern technological Bluetooth age and wonder what does cloven tongues of fire and a mighty rushing wind through the open windows have to do with us? Like, what does that have to do with 2022? In, in whatever way could that possibly be something practical? I get people who read the gift lists in Ephesians or Romans and 1 Corinthians and wonder, I've never seen those things or... Man, when I've been around prophecy, it's just been misused. So I get it. But we're still left with the upper room discourse, a part of which we read today. And so what I often help Christians see is based on this question. You think Jesus is smart, right? Right? Like you think he understood reality as it was, right? And you love Jesus, right? You think he's wonderful, well, then we're left with this. It is better that I go away. Why? Because if I go away, the Spirit will be sent. And of course, they sort of panic because their big fear is one of being abandoned. And that's it comes through in the upper room discourse. It comes through in what we read this morning, that Jesus is promising them, no, you will not be abandoned. You will precisely be companioned. My spirit will remain with you through the Holy Spirit, and he'll teach you and lead you and guide you, etc. We'll talk a bit more about that. So actually, the spirit is as easily grieved, right? Uh, I forget where now in Acts, but it talks about the spirit being grieved. It's one of the passages that theologians often use to show the personhood of the spirit. So the spirit is grieved. Well, I want you to know that the Spirit is as easily grieved by being ignored as he is by excess. 
And for many of us who come out of a certain strain of the American evangelical world, our sense of what Christianity is is something like this, that God the Father is really mad about our sins, and he placates himself through the death of his son, period. That's sort of, you know, sort of Christianity 101. And in that sense of Christian spirituality, there is no intuitive, imaginative role for the spirit. Because if Christianity is all about merely, merely forgiveness of sins and going to heaven when we die, then there's no imagination for what the Spirit was supposed to do in the church. Lead us, guide us, give us fruit, give us gifts. Help us to carry on the kingdom movement of Jesus, to be ambassadors of the kingdom, to be the cooperative friends of Jesus. Once you start doing that, once you start working at the interface, for instance, of injustice, once you start trying to be an agent of healing in our world, to all kinds of levels of brokenness, you will suddenly find that it would be really good to be accompanied by the power, the dunamis, the authority, the authoritarian of God that we're commissioned in God's name to keep this Jesus movement going and to have gifts of the Spirit and have the fruit of the Spirit growing in us. Suddenly in that version of a more kingdom missional Christianity, the Spirit makes perfect sense. And this is what I want to help us see this morning that actually the breadth of the Spirit's work is awesome at creation, presently superintending history as a part of the Trinitarian God, revealing God's truth, drawing people to Jesus, teaching the way of Jesus, as Paul says in Romans, revealing the love of God to our hearts, giving us the power, the authority, the equipping gifts, the transformation of our heart via the fruit. The, the reality of the matter is, I want to say, is that by God's plan and purposes, we live in the age of the Spirit. Jim Packer, not known as some sort of crazy Pentecostal, said this, that the essence of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that he mediates to us the personal presence and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the underlying logic of the narrative is something like this, that Jesus was bodily present to the 12, to the 120, and even wider communities, wherever he was. He was bodily present to them. But let's think now uh, about those who were first following him. What he's saying to them is, I'm going to the Father, but you're not going to be abandoned. I am going to remain with you through the Spirit. And so in the same way that, that, that Jesus' body mediated himself to his first followers, Jesus is going to be mediated to us. And now this global church, I mean, just imagine this with me for a minute, a, a second. A 2,000-year-old global church. How is it that the personal presence of Jesus is known to them, is mediated to them, day in and day out, moment by moment? And the answer is the person and work of the Spirit. This is why he is actually central to this story. Something I love that arises out of the, um, the narrative of the Gospels is Jesus's personal reliance on the Father. Many times in the scriptures, he says things like, I only do the things I see my Father doing, or I only say the things I hear my Father saying, or the Son can do nothing on his own, only what the Father does through him, or the Son has not come to do his own will, but only the will of the Father. Can you feel that not as Christology? But feel that for what it was, relational reliance on a person, on his father. 
And what Jesus has in mind in the upper room discourse is that what I had with the Father, you will have with the purposes of God through the Trinity, I mean, through the Spirit. That the Spirit will precisely lead you, guide you, teach you, remind you everything I've been trying to teach you. Well, that's not just ethics. That's also this kingdom mission and how we find our part in it. Again, through seeing, through having visions, as the text read in in, uh, Acts today, seeing what the Father wants to do in and through us. This is why Luke 24, 49, which we didn't read this morning, it's read in other cycles of Pentecost. We didn't read it this morning, but you know, that's that text when Jesus says to his first scared group of followers, I'm going to send you what the Father has promised. But wait in the city, stay in the city until you've received power from on high. Why? They had already had all kinds of interaction with Christ. Weren't they sort of good enough to go? And in some senses, of course, yes. But the reason they're asked to wait for the Spirit to come is, and this to me is the most important sentence I have to say to you. It's because the purposes of God in fully orbed discipleship and mission require a power that matches that intention. Let me say that again. The fully orbed purposes of God in a robust discipleship and and a robust engagement with the world as it currently presents itself to us, that requires a power that matches that intention. And this is why they were told to wait. Because once the Spirit came, they would be given guidance and power and authority and gifts and character transformation. So what we read this morning in Acts 2 is, as I said, Pentecost is that moment when the personal presence of Jesus with the disciples is translated into the personal power of Jesus in the disciples and in those who were at Pentecost. So that Pentecost then launches both the mode and the means by which God is putting into action his power and authority in his new people with the notion that a new world is being born. Now, I want want to invite you to, again, just think about this imaginatively. It's one thing to say, well, you know, I'm really a Presbyterian or I'm really a Lutheran or I'm really an Anglican, but okay, I guess I'll take a little bit of the spirit. How do you say that to Almighty God? Well, I'll take a little bit. Or think about it. I'm open. That used to be a phrase, sort of open evangelicals. Like as if God's impressed with our openness. Well, I'm open to you. Like Jesus went around saying, blessed are you for you are open. No, he said, blessed are you, for you have faith. And I've never seen faith like this, and I commend your faith. And so the invitation here is for us to trust that this enormous pivot point of the Holy Spirit is real. It cannot be reduced to a denominational choice. It cannot be reduced to a religious experience of I'll just take a little bit of the Spirit. No, it's a plunging of our whole life into trusting what Jesus said. That's why I said, you like Jesus, right? You trust him. You think he's smart. Well, don't listen to me. Don't listen to crazy Pentecostals. Trust your Lord. 
who said that if you're gonna, if you're gonna be a part of this movement through which a new world is being born, it is pivotal that you have an ongoing, robust, conversational relationship with Almighty God, the Holy Spirit. So the important aspect of this, of this new world being born through the church, this is what's meant to be to us the joy of the spirit-filled life, not the weirdness, the joy of a spirit-filled life. How the spirit then becomes the animating, energizing, empowering, and gifting to coin a phrase, the infruiting action of the spirit being loosed in the church and in each individual within the church. So then being filled with the spirit, it's not an idea, it's not a proposition, it's not pneumatology, it's not some bit of doctrine, it's something that we're meant to know by experience. Now again, I know this is where it gets weird. So you may not know, like you may, you may not feel like, I'm not really clear about, you know, when we get the spirit. Like is it a conversion and there's, you know, a whole big, you know, set of arguments around that. And you might not be sure about how, you know, like large portions of the church believe that, you know, it's comes, the initial evidence is speaking in tongues. So you may not be clear about how the spirit comes. You may not be clear about when the spirit comes. But this morning, I want to ask you to have clarity about this. Is my life inspired by the spirit? We can debate the modes and methodologies till we all get to heaven and figure it out. But we can't wait for our lives to be inspired by the Spirit as promised by the Father and as taught by Jesus. This is why he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. For the helper will come. And this word paraclete is translated all sorts of ways by Scholars, theologians, and Greek scholars, way smarter than I. It's been translated in, in numerous different ways, and I guess there's no real, real commonality about how it's best translated. One of my favorite translations I've ever heard of it is the continuator. That I'm going to continue with you. That's the sense. You see, that's the sense that you're not going to be abandoned. My presence will continue with you. And this was a great promise, not just sort of evocatively because the, or emotionally because the, Jesus' first friends were afraid of being abandoned, but Jesus knows, no, this is central to how this new world is going to be born through my people who continue on the Jesus kingdom movement. So thinking again of living an inspired life. In Eugene Peterson's book called Eat This Book, he writes this. Everyone recognizes the difference between an accurate but wooden performance of, say, Mozart's Violin Concerto Number no. 1. Meaning, you know, like picture a 14-year-old, you know, celloist who's up and coming and doing well. And they can play in tune and they can play in time. And they're sort of, you know, just woodenly giving themselves to the page in front of them. Peterson says that's a very different thing than a virtuoso performance by Yitzhak Perelman. For Perlman's performance is not distinguished merely by his technical skill in reproducing what Mozart composed. No, Perlman wondrously enters into and conveys the spirit and the energy, the life of the score. That is your Pentecostal invitation. 
to wondrously enter into the life of the church, the life of the kingdom of God, his ruling and reign working in and through the church, that we enter that by the joy of a spirit-empowered life. And I could go on and on giving illustrations, but for instance, John Wesley, again, not known to be a particularly charismatic person, says that when he received the spirit, his heart was strangely warmed, and it broke the power of what had heretofore been a cool religion. Here in Chicago, we can talk about Moody, again, not known as a crazy charismatic. Moody says that at his filling of the Spirit, it was such an experience of God's love that he had to ask him to stop. R.A. Torrey, again, not known as some sort of, you know, pesky Pentecostal. Torrey says that after his filling, that he had a new joy in life, a new power in preaching. He noticed new opportunities and new gifts. So if we were just to ask again, I want to summarize for you, what is it that the Spirit does? What is the role that he's meant to play? And at an irreducible minimum, I would say this, that the Spirit is meant to move us to be and do in the manner of Jesus. Let me say that again. At the irreducible minimum, the life of the Spirit in us is meant to help us to move and do and be in the manner of Jesus. Now, just think about that phrase for a minute, the manner of Jesus. Think about the quality of his inner life. How did it feel to him when he said, I only do what the Father is doing? Like, a, ah, darn it, I'd kind of like to do my own thing. Or was there some comfort, some consolation, some, something essential in him, his inward experience of the love of his Father for him, his essential joy and peace? That's the work of the Spirit that is meant to happen in us. But also to give us authority. Um, I'm an old baseball head, and there's a, a saying that says, you can't hit on your heels, meaning, you know, if you're back on your heels, you can't do anything in sports. You can't be a linebacker. You can't receive, you know, uh, serve in tennis. You can't do anything on your heels. Well, I know that the church is currently getting the bad stuff beat out of it. And there's not a day that goes by when there's not bad news about the church. And I know because of my work in this that there are millions of people fleeing the church and that the church is often not seen as a source of good in the world, but actually a source of bad. And so in very many ways, the church is back on her heels. And I get it. I'm not criticizing I'm just saying we can't hit from our heels. We've got to somehow find our way back to a, a, like a, a readiness, an inner readiness that comes from the knowledge of we have been given authority by the Spirit. That doesn't mean authority to bully others or to demand our own way. It means something like you're authorized, you're commissioned. It has apostolic notions attached to it, sentness. And power, dunamis in the New Testament just simply means capacity. Like, if we're really a part of bringing a new world to bear, that's going to take capacity. And the notion is really simple. It's just you're going to have the ability to do what your rabbi did. You're going to stay in the Jesus movement. But you come to it broken. I come to it broken. And so the Spirit's going to be alive in you, transforming your character through the fruit of the Spirit. So that the, the imagination here is that the church is constantly on a journey outward to be agents of healing and justice and reconciliation in the world. But the church is also always on a journey of her own transformation into Christ's likeness. And all of that is energized by the Spirit, who also gives us gifts. 
Now, again, I know this is where people start feeling crazy. But gifts translates, except for in Ephesians 4, translates uh, charismata. Well, so you know what the word charis means, right? What's the root of charismata is charis, right? What's that mean? Grace. And mata as a suffix there means something like little portion of. And all the gifts of the Spirit are, therefore, are these little portions of God's grace. I think it was Russ Spittler at Fuller coined the term um, gracelets. And these gracelets are just falling upon the church, and they're falling on individual Christians. The gifts aren't weird. They're normative. They're normative if you're trying to be an ambassador of the kingdom, if you're trying to live in the Jesus movement, you'll know that you need them. And when you think of it as God's grace, as charismata, you know, dropping upon the church, there's nothing to be feared in that understanding. So I want to say this morning that being filled with the Spirit is participatory. And it arose in precisely a narrative to which Jesus pointed to this pivotal point of wait in Jerusalem till you're filled with the Spirit, So it raises the last question then, how do we get in on this? How do we participate? And I think it begins with desiring to get in on the story from which the person and the work of the Spirit emerges. John 20, even as the Father sent me, so I send you. So again, Jesus is picturing, he's just commissioning these people who have been custom-made by the Father, appointed, authorized, and assigned. And then next, the text says that Jesus took a deep breath, and he breathed into them and said, become a Lutheran. (laughs) They got it right. (laughs) No, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The the text is like he inhaled deeply and then exhaled in inflating his first followers, like inflating their lives with the Spirit. And he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Note that he doesn't say receive gifts or receive fruit. He says receive a person. Receive the third person of Almighty God into your life, and he will become for you the animating power, the capacity, the ability to fulfill your callings, to discover your gifts, and to have fruit come through your life. And this is why merely being open is not enough. What this text anticipates is a confident welcome of the Spirit, an embrace of his life and leadership. In fact, the Greek construction here is very close to our Eucharistic constructions, where when Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit, it's the same sort of thing as he took the cup and he took the bread and he said, receive. So this means, this take means to receive or actively lay hold of it. Again, it's the very same word that Jesus used at the Last Supper, take, eat. One Greek dictionary says that what this means is, is that we're to accept the spirit with our initiative and that this emphasizes the will or the assertiveness of the receiver. So in the same way we come to Eucharist like this, we come to the Holy Spirit like this. Yes, yes, I abandon myself to the purposes of God. I abandon myself to this Trinitarian being and to to the third person. And again, I want to say this is the reason Jesus put so much emphasis on faith in the New Testament. Never does he say, by your honest skepticism, are you healed? 
Never does he say, because of your understandable cynicism, you've been made well. No, he commends faith. Not that faith in any way ever controls God. Of course, I don't mean that. But Jesus had the ability to recognize those who wanted to be in on the Jesus movement. And he was always amazed by it. So the idea here is like Paul says in um, 1 Corinthians 12, to eagerly desire the gifts, to ask, to try, to cooperate, believe, start, persevere, learn to recognize the activity of the Spirit around you. And then lastly, for me, this is always the most comforting thing because I'm telling you, um, I've spent almost my entire life around Pentecostals and Charismatics, and I don't mean that to necessarily criticize anybody. I just mean to know I get when people react to excesses. But I want you to hear this. You know, Luke 11, there's this string of parables uh, about prayer, and Jesus' member says finally, ask, seek, and knock. But I want you to remember this this morning. His final words were, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? If you ask, you're not going to be given a counterfeit. If you ask in the kind of faith that Jesus commends, genuinely opening your heart and your life to the person and work of the Spirit, enabling you to take your place in this magnificent ongoing story of God with his people right at the center of it, his cooperative friends filled with the spirit. That's the vision. If you say yes to that and say, Lord, I want that, you will be given it. I want to take a moment and invite you to just sit however you'd like, close your eyes or not. If you feel so led, you might want to lift your hands as if to Receive a gift. And where's our worship leader? Can you come back? Um, I want you to just have a moment of quiet here as I pray over you. And then when I'm done, I'd like you to sing over us again, Spirit of the Living God. Sing it over us. Now, Father, you see your people, you see their hearts. And Father, wherever you're seeing readiness, I pray that you'd fill your people with the power of your spirit. Lord, animate their lives. Exhale on them and fill them up. Lord, I pray for those who have felt like they've understood and worked in the gifts of the spirit, but somehow that's dried up. Lord, would you fill them afresh this morning? Give them a fresh confidence in the gifts that you've given them. And Lord, where there's hunger for faith to be renewed in general, by your spirit, Lord, fill your people in every way that you see in them individually. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me and all the world. Maybe say that with me just silently. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, 
renew me and all the world. Now let's stand and say that with me again. Lord Jesus Christ, or sorry, Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me and all the world. And let this song now be our prayer.